I envy dead men. I envy dead men whose funerals are attended by so many mourners that they are pressed up against each other in the pews and late arrivals are forced to lean against the walls or stand outside at the curb. I fear that when I die, there will be too few who bear witness to my passing, that there won't be enough men to carry my casket into the church. But that is an inexhaustible question, one I know has no answer in the here and now, and after, I won't care. Still, I hope that when I examine other people's words, I see an answer, although I never have. They don't tell me what I want to hear, that I matter now, and later I'll be clearly irrevocably missed. We dismiss each other so easily, expecting so much, but offering so little in return. It's no wonder that I work so hard, yet receive so little regard from those who let my love burn up inside my mouth. Have you never thought about the cost of your tone-deaf ignorance? Or are you so afraid of your kindness being ignored or exploited that you are ready to die alone with only a nurse or priest to sit with you as you express your last breath into their impassive faces? I'm not afraid to say that I am afraid to die alone. I am afraid of knowing that few people will witness my passing or carry me to my final resting place under the invisible eyes of a creator who made me a man of constant sorrow and yet could not see his way to making me a man constantly surrounded by people who are not afraid to articulate their appreciation for me. Or maybe I'm just tone deaf too, and I'm more concerned about what happens to me than what happens to you, or lifting someone else out of their misery over the thought of dying alone with no one to sit watch over their final hours, promising that I will be there to share their last breath. But I still envy dead men, whose funerals are attended by so many who loved them, the many, many mourners who feel compelled to commemorate their passing with tears and snot and guttural sounds that well up from inside of them, that originated in Eden and stretched out towards the last day like the clawed hands of a man grasping for anything that will keep him from a drowning in a pool of his own mournful cries of anguish and anger because the one he loves is never again coming home for dinner. Why do we have to wait for Jesus to return before we feel that kind of love? Why can't we just say what we all know needs to be said, that outside of a special few, you won't miss me when I'm gone? You'll feel a twinge of pity, and you'll thank God it's not your time. Then you'll go back to your family, or TV show, or whatever was diverting your attention from reality before you heard the news that someone else you knew has died. I've spent my life squeezing every last drop out of possibility, out of life, for better and worse. And all I've got to show for it is remorse and hope knowing that I have already been given the answer to the inexhaustible question. That it doesn't matter if I die alone or how many people are seated in the church. All that matters is that when I pass, I'll pass through my grave into the resurrection, where I will finally see all the people who were just like me, hoping against hope that there's more to life 
than envying dead men. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 139, and I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Thank you so much, as always, for your time and attention. Apologies for there not being an episode published last week. I was feeling a bit under the weather and was unable to record last Wednesday and Thursday, but I am back, and I thought today, since I was reading these poems last week, I would share them with you. I think I've read The Wanderer before on High Ground, which is another little side bonus episode that I put out from time to time where I just read texts that I want to introduce to you. But today I thought we would go through The Wanderer again with some commentary and then also a second short poem that I just think is beautiful and it's from the same genre of Anglo-Saxon early English epic poetry. So that being said, then let's just dive right into it. This is The Wanderer, an Anglo-Saxon poem that is found in the book of Exeter. It's a famous book, and you can look it up online. I think it's mostly available. But this poem, The Wanderer, scholars argue is about a warrior who owed complete fealty to his war chief. And he was knocked unconscious during a battle. And during the same battle, his war chief died. And so when he revives after the battle and he finds himself without his war chief, he becomes, in essence, what in the East we would call a ronin. He's a masterless samurai, so to speak. And then this, then, is a recounting of how he got where he's at when he writes this poem. So the wanderer, he writes, Often the lonely receives love, the creator's help. Though heavy with care over the sea, he suffers long, stirring his hands in the frosty swell. The way of exile, fate never wavers. The wanderer spoke. He told his sorrows, the deadly onslaughts, the death of the clan. At dawn alone I must mouth my cares. The man does not live whom I dare tell my depths straight out. I see truth in the lordly custom for the courageous man to bind fast his breast. Loyal to his treasure closet, thoughts aside. The weary cannot control fate, nor do bitter thoughts settle things. The eager for glory often bind something bloody close to their breasts. Wretched, I tie my heart with ropes far from my home, far from my kinsmen, since a hole in the ground hid my chief long ago. Laden with cares, weary, I crossed the confine of waves, sought the troop of a dispenser of treasure, far or near to find the man who knew my merits in the mead hall, who would foster a friendless man, treat me to joys. He who has put it to a test knows how cruel a companion is sorrow for one who has few friendly protectors. Exile guards him, not wrought gold. A freezing heart, not the fullness of the earth. He remembers warriors, 
the hall, rewards, how as a youth his friend honored him at feasts, the gold-giving prince, joy has perished. He knows how it is to suffer long without the beloved wisdom of a friendly lord. Often when sorrow and sleep together bind the worn, lonely warrior, it seems in his heart that he holds and kisses the lord of the troop and lays on his knees his head and hands as he had before in times gone by at the gift-giver's throne. When the friendless warrior awakens again, he sees before him the black waves. Sea birds bathing, feathers spreading, frost and snow falling with hail. The wounds of his heart are heavier, sore after his friends. Sorrow is renewed when the mind ponders the memory of kinsmen. He greets them with joy. He anxiously grasps for something to say. They swim away again. The breasts of ghosts do not bring the living much wisdom. Woe is renewed for him who must send his weary heart way out over the prison of waves. Therefore, in this world, I cannot think of a reason why my soul does not blacken when I seriously consider all the warriors, tested at war, how they suddenly sank to the floor, the brave kinsmen. But this world, every day falls to dust. No man is wise until he lives many winters in the kingdom of the world. The wise must be patient, never too hasty with feelings, nor too hot with words, nor too weak as a warrior, nor too witlessly brash, nor too fearful, nor too ready, nor too greedy for reward, nor even too feverish for boasting until testing his fiber. A man should wait before he makes a vow until, like a true warrior, he eagerly tests which way the courage of his heart will course. The good warrior must understand how ghostly it will be when all this world of wealth stands wasted, as now in many places about this mass of earth, walls stand battered by the wind, covered by frost, the roofs collapsed. The wine halls crumbled, the warriors lie dead, cut off from joy the great troop all crumpled proud by the wall. One more took, led to his death. One a bird lifted over the high sea. One the hoary wolf broke with death. One bloody-cheeked a warrior hid in a hole in the ground. Likewise, God destroyed this earthly dwelling until the strongholds of the giants stood empty, without the sounds of joy in the city dwellers. Then the wise man thinks about the wall and deeply considers this dark life. From times far away, the wanderer recalls the deadly slashes and says what happened to the horse, what happened to the warrior, what happened to the gift giver, what happened to the wine hall where the sounds, where are the sounds of joy? A Allah, bright beaker, a Allah, bearnied warrior. Ay Allah, the chief's majesty, how those moments went, grayed in the night as if they never were. A wall still stands near the tracks of the warriors, wondrously high. Worms have stained it. A host of spears hungry for carnage destroyed the men, 
that marvelous fate. Storms beat these stone cliffs. A blanket of frost binds the earth, and winter is moaning. When the mists darken and night descends, the north delivers a fury of hail and hatred at men. All is wretched in the realm of the earth. The way of fate changes the world under heaven. Here is treasure lent. Here is a friend lent. Here is a man lent. Here is a kinsman lent. All of the earth will be empty. So spoke the wise in heart. He sits alone with this mystery. He is good to keep faith. Grief must never escape a man's heart too quickly, unless with his might, like a true warrior, he has sought a lasting boon. It is best for him who seeks love, help from the Heavenly Father where all stands firm. And again, that is The Wanderer, translated by Jeffrey Hopkins. And again, it's an old English poem, an epic poem, a sonnet, actually, safeguarded in the compilation known as the Exeter Book, which is a composition that dates back to the 10th century. Over 115 lines of alliterative words. We don't know the author or the compiler, which is common in Anglo-Saxon verse, and the sonnet, the, the poem itself, is untitled. But I don't think it really matters who wrote it or if many people wrote it. If it was passed down generation to generation in its original text or whether it was taken and edited by monks later. The words communicate, in my opinion, the power of loss and the yearning to be again with friends and loved ones, especially your leader your mentor, your master, the one who rose, raised you up, taught you how to be a warrior, taught you how to be a gift giver, and now to wander and to realize, like the writer to Israel in the book of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, the preacher as he's called, that wisdom comes through experience. Wisdom comes through a lifetime of failure and learning from that failure. And so the wanderer, reflecting back on where he's come from, is left with a sense of not only yearning for the past, questioning why what happened happened in the way it did, or how it unfolded this way, but also then, what is the fate of all men? And why are we here? And where are we going? And is it only so that we can bury those whom we love until others bury us? Or is there more to life? Is the fighting and the meat hall and the storytelling and the gift giving, is that life? And if it is, where does that lead us to? Does it lead us to the grave and black silence and the indifference of the earth towards whom it devours? Or is there an afterlife? Is there a God, a Heavenly Father, waiting to take us in to that higher place? And so the wanderer reflects on his own life and that his war chief died 
in the battle in which he was rendered unconscious, so that he couldn't even fight to defend the life of his war chief. And all of the other soldiers that fought to his left and to his right are also now gone. They also were cut down in the battle, and he alone survives. So he leaves his home, and he wanders out into the chilliness of winter, and he cruises over the waves in a boat, and he's looking for another war chief. He's looking for more kinsmen. He's looking for more brothers in arms that he can share the mead bench with. He can trade tales with in the winter time. He can go out to battle with them in the spring and summer. He can love again. He can receive and give gifts again. And he can be reminded day after day after day that he's not alone in this world. And yet he feels forsaken. He can't find satisfaction. He can't find those things that delight him like the mead bench. And so he is alone. And he reflects on all the others who are also alone. And he yearns to be with them and prays that they feel the same. And so he encounters people in the past, but he says about these encounters that he feels like an outcast. He feels like a ronin, a masterless samurai. And so the depression and the sadness that he feels isn't the depression and sadness of, let's say, narcissism or egoism, but rather it is the sadness and the depression of one who knows he was made to sit at that bench, to trade stories with others, to hear and to laugh and to sing and to go out to war and to love and even to bury his kinsmen, his war chief, but also in the hope that when his time comes, they'll be there for him. And as of yet, he hasn't found that. And there's a sense, I think we all experience this in those moments or in those times when we are sad and we are depressed, that we wonder, is this all there is now? Will I ever find anyone to share my life with again? Will I ever meet someone who I can share a laugh with? Is there anybody in the world who could look into my heart and know me as well as the one whom I buried knew me? Is this misery all that there is left for me? Are there joyful days ahead or are they all now in my past? As I get old, I guess, not older, but old, this is something that happens more often than not. I think the older you get, and talking with others about this, they agree with me, but the older you get, there's this temptation to become enslaved to nostalgia, to want to always look backwards over your shoulder at the past, because the window to the past is wider and more open than the window toward the future. At least that's the way you think as you get old. And in your nostalgia, it's so easy to repaint and Photoshop and edit the past, to refer to it as the golden years or the good times. So when I listen to the baby boomers talk about their generation and the good old days, and I laugh at them and I think, whatever, rose-tinted glasses, I get it. But now that I'm 51 and I start looking back at the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s because I'm Generation X, I'm wistful as well. I think about the freedom that I had growing up in the 70s and 80s to leave home in the morning at 8 a.m. and not come home until after dark 
to play in the woods and build tree forts and have BB gun fights and shoot bottle rockets at each other and build snow forts and ride snowmobile in the fields to stay up late playing Atari and Nintendo, watching cartoons all morning on Saturdays, Recess and Fiat. I recently went back, actually speaking of nostalgia, and looked up my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Olson. And I think it's Judy Olson. I can't remember because it was sixth grade and I'm 51 now. But she's one of those teachers that had a significant impact on my life because she recognized that my hyperactivity and my constant need to talk to other people around me at my desk wasn't a curse. It wasn't a cross that she had to bear, but rather it was an untapped resource. So she put me in plays and made me the star of the play. I was Tom Sawyer twice in the school play. I was the narrator for the Christmas program, the Christmas play. And even when she punished me, even back in the day, this is, let's see, 1983, 84, even when she washed my mouth out with soap for cursing, because that was what you did in sixth grade when you discovered the beauty of cursing and the power it had over adults. And she was clever, Mrs. Olson, because we started the year with a bar of soap, but she was a small woman, probably 5'3", five, 5'4", five, just wiry, just twisted like a piece of knotted wood, just strong. And most of the students were as tall as she was in sixth grade. But oh, she was so tough. And she discovered that that bar of soap wasn't effective because we would clinch our jaw and lock it so she couldn't get the soap in. So she switched about midway through the first three, four months of the fall, she switched to liquid soap so she could just squirt it between her teeth. But even then, even when she would give me detention and I have to go outside and clean erasers. Yes, I'm that old. I had to go outside and clean erasers. In that punishment, she would make a way for me to express my creativity and to get that energy out. And because of her, I drew and I painted. And because of her, I got interested in poetry and prose and literature. <coughs> Excuse me. And because of her, my imagination was fueled. And so I thought, well, I'm not feeling too good today. I'm in bed. I can't record the podcast. I'll look at my old teacher and see how her life ended up. And I could only find one picture of her long after she had retired. And the school that I went to, the elementary school, has since been closed and turned into an old folks home and a museum, actually. If you want to feel old, take your kids to see your old school and discover it's a museum now. <laughs> <laughs> and that there's an old folks home attached to it. But finding the picture of her and her husband after she had retired, all white-haired and smiling ear to ear and happy, and her husband smiling ear to ear and happy with her, and reading this blog that this woman had written who had gone to school and been in sixth grade and been in Mrs. Olson's class about 10 years before I was, she had the same memories of my teacher that I did. And that was enough for me in that moment to settle into nostalgia and recognize that this woman wrote about the difficulties she had in school and how this teacher, Mrs. Olson, recognized that she was a little lost, that the other girls weren't that kind to her because of her religion, because of the way that her family dressed her and so on. And so she took her under her wing as well and nurtured and mentored her. And all these years later, she's an author now too. And she had the same twinge of nostalgia that I had and wrote this blog article about this teacher that we both loved. And I think that's healthy, actually. I think it's healthy to go back 
And remember that there are people and there are events in your life that are good and that it's good to remember those people and those events and to be grateful for those moments and for those years because they did something for you that formed and shaped you and made you into the person that you are today. I think that's good. I think the negative side, the dark side of that street is when we're nostalgic for that time and place and wish we could go back to that time and place, not remembering what it's like to be a sixth grader, not remembering what it's like to be living in a home or on a a block or in a city where all of these other things that are negative happened. You got bullied. You didn't fit in. You got embarrassed in front of your classmates. You said or did something that you could never take back and it stuck with you throughout the entirety of your school career. And you didn't escape it until you got out of school and graduated and went off to college far, far away from where you grew up at so that nobody knew you and you could reinvent yourself. It's good to look back. It's good to recall the old days, whether they were good or bad in your memory. To gain perspective, to learn, to say, you know what? My Mrs. Olson, my sixth grade teacher did that for me so that when I see that child that I was, and my initial response is to tell them to sit down and shut up because I'm teaching or I'm in charge here or I'm leading the way. Remember how I felt in sixth grade when Mrs. Olson took me and and brought me and nurtured me up and put a put a fence line around all of that youthful energy and focused my imagination into these productive, what do you want to say? These productive endeavors that then led to me going into an art program, led to me studying music, led to me writing poetry, led to me being a published author, author led to me making my own art to this day. Because of those kinds of people, I am who I am. And that's the grace of God. But likewise, I'm not going to pretend that she was some saint that just floated up into the ether and disappeared into heaven when it was her time. Because my memories of Mrs. Olson are the memories of a child, a sixth grader. And so I saw her like a child, and I understood her as a child. And so I am grateful for her and all that she did for me at that time, that one year that changed the the course and the outcome of my life from then on. But I still became an alcoholic. I was still a drug addict. I was still a pathological liar and a thief. I still ruined other people's lives and hurt and harmed and trampled other people. And it's only now, after going through all of that, the negative side of things, the dark side of the street, that I can look back and recall she saw something in me. And it didn't sustain me when I was younger and I was caught up in the throes of addiction. I couldn't see the value of what she did for me then. But yet, what she instilled in me carried me through my addictions and contributed to me getting clean and sober and contributed to my marriage and my family. And it contributed to who I am today as a pastor and as an instructor and as a teammate. And so a part of me, a part of my heart, was formed and fashioned then, when I was still mostly raw material. And I'm sure you have similar experiences. And yet, like I said, the dark side is, actually, I wrote this in the shower, which is where I do my best writing, just standing there in the shower, vulnerable and naked and 
with the heat and the steam rising up and my brain just being kind of let free to be open. Because my wife asked me, why do I come up with my most creative stuff in the shower? And it's like, because you're naked and vulnerable physically. And, and you have to accept that. And then you're standing under that hot shower. And I like my showers hot. <laughs> like almost not tolerably hot. And there's a vulnerability and an exposure that comes with that too, of having to stand there and breathe through the heat and let it permeate your skin and open you up. And so when you're open like that, lots of thoughts break free and float out and express themselves in ways that you didn't even know existed prior to that experience. So I came up with this the other night in the shower, which goes to the point, and I just remembered it as I was talking here. I kept her locked up in my mind for decades, where she clawed and bit at me like a wild animal, until I got so sick to my stomach that I unlocked the cage and watched as she sprang away into the thick undergrowth of youthful nostalgia that had crept up, threatening to overgrow and choke off my old age. That's what we do, in my opinion. Is there are people from our past that we keep locked up in our mind for decades, as I describe in this poem. And they claw and they bite at me anyways, because they want to escape because they're just memories. They're just raw memories. Some from when you were a child and you saw things and experienced things as a child. Some when you were young, maybe in college, early 30s. When you were starting to figure it out and starting to figure out your way in the world. But there were people that you intersected with and there were faces and places that you saw and experienced that formed you. And, and some not for the better. And I hold these people then in these cages locked up in my mind for decades. And then when they make themselves known to be again, and they start clawing and biting and, and screaming and crying out to me to let them go, I get sick to my stomach because I think to myself, why can't I set her free? Why can't I just let his memory go and appreciate that time that we had together? Why do I have to hold on to something that isn't real anymore? It's because youthful nostalgia is so much more appealing as you get older than old age. Because you are freer, the further away you get from the original person, the original event, you're freer to concoct and create and formulate and write the script on a past that didn't exist. But it's the past that you wished had, and it's so easy for us to convince ourselves that that is actually the way it was. Because those people and those things only exist as a memory locked inside our mind. And if we were to go back to the house, if we were go, to go back to that place, that vacation, that moment, if we were to see that person today and the person who they are today, they would in no way resemble the person that you remember in your mind. And that to me then, that youthful nostalgia creeps up like a weed, like a choking plant. And rather than enjoying old age, enjoying the wisdom of a life well lived, instead you get trapped by youthful nostalgia and you stop living altogether. You stop living in the present tense and the future is closed because you've turned your back to it. So that rather than looking forward, praying and hoping for people 
and for events and for things to come from the future to you, to give you that consolation, that solace, that joy and peace that you enjoyed in the past, but now you want to enjoy in the present as an adult. You shut all of that off by looking over your shoulder at what's not real anymore. And I think then it's very important that we not discount how powerful memory is, how powerful people and events are that form us in the present that happened in the past. And so with the wanderer then, this is what he's wondering about, the past, the present, and the future. What does God the Creator have in store for the creation then? And what do you do when you're mourning? And fortune and happiness and brotherhood and fellowship aren't available to you in the present. When you feel like everyone and everything that you value is going to vanish, or maybe it already has, and now you just sit there, adrift out on the sea, abandoned, dim, wondering, is this it? And I think, too, then, this is why it's so vitally important that when we get in those moments of sadness and despair and depression, that we not just quit, we not just give up and say, well, that's that, nothing I can do about that, nothing I can do about my life now, it is what it is, and I guess this is it, versus, no, you can seek comfort, you can seek comfort from God, you can seek comfort from other people but you have to leave the house. You have to get out of your own head. You have to stop wallowing in nostalgia for what was and look forward to what will be. And what will be is the people that you meet and that you interact with. They are the ones who will challenge you and motivate you and inspire you to be someone that you didn't even imagine was possible to be. And so, yes, we all suffer in this life. Yes, we're all lonely in this life. Yes, we wonder about these questions, these big picture questions about God, the universe, and everything. But at the the root of all of that wondering, I think, is the desire and the need, the desperate need that we all have to enjoy fellowship with other people, to enjoy a moment. And sometimes just that moment can carry you for the rest of the day. One year with my sixth grade teacher has carried me for most of my life. Even in the worst of times, I remembered her. And I recalled her words to me and how she treated me. So that even when I was surrounded by people who were abusing and exploiting me, and I was abusing and exploiting them, as low as I got, even when I hit rock bottom, there was always that thought in the back of my mind, what would Mrs. Olson think of you now? What do you think she would say if she found you curled up on the floor like this in your bathroom? Now, at the time, that caused me great shame and guilt, because I wallowed in shame and guilt as an addict. I played the victim. But after I got clean and sober, I knew what the answer was. She'd scold me. She'd send me outside to clean the erasers again, to give me something to do. And then afterwards, she'd give me an assignment to draw a picture so that we could put it up in the classroom. She'd say, use that energy for something positive and productive. Use that to enrich other people's lives. That's why you have that talent. That's why you have that creativity. That's why you have your voice. 
That's why you're hyperactive and you can't shut up and sit down. And I think if we can keep that in mind, even in our lowest moments, even when we're as lonely as lonely can get, even when we believe that we are the most pitiful people on earth and that the path that we walk is the path of exile, we can reach out. We can pick up the phone, we can text, we can go out and find others to talk to. Maybe it's just to have a conversation at the coffee shop. Maybe it's just doing something kind for somebody that you see is struggling. Maybe you volunteer and you go out to the soup kitchen, you go to the food distribution, you go and volunteer for Habitat for Humanity, or you sign up for AmeriCorps or the Peace Corps or become a missionary. But rather than sit and pity yourself and see yourself as a victim, recognize that it was a gift to have loved and lost at all in the first place. That it is a gift to have teachers and mentors and family and friends who you can be wistful for, who you can be nostalgic for, who you do miss and mourn over. That's a gift. Because there's other people who are praying to have the kind of fellowship and the kind of camaraderie that you enjoyed in the past and could enjoy again if you would go out the door and rather than set sail alone on a boat out on the sea, go down to the cafe, go to a friend's house, right? Run across the way to the other dorms, knock on the door, go sit in the cafeteria and just shoot the shit for no other reason than to just be together and enjoy each other's company. Because at the best, what the wanderer reminds me of is that it's easy to kind of fold into oneself in mourning and yearning. And that there is, well, there's no positive thing that comes out of that in the end, other than more sadness, despair, and worry. A nostalgia for the past that I don't think is healthy. And yet those reminders of your war chief, your kinsman, the soldiers that died, they, at least for myself, anecdotally, experientially, that's what motivates me to keep going, to remind myself they would trade places with me in a second. So I'm going to live for them. I'm going to keep the faith and stand steadfast for them. I'm going to love passionately and unconditionally for them. And I'm going to get out of my own way and go find others like me who are lonely and in despair and sad and sit with them and simply enjoy the gift of being with another person, enjoying that fellowship and that love. And often, that's more than enough. So that's enough of that. (laughs) The second one I wanted to go to, it's a shorter poem, but I think it's fitting because it goes with the theme of what I'm talking about today, and it also fits with the wander. It's called Wolfen Edwacher. And again, old English poem, and it's found in the Exeter book as well. I think you can find it online. But Wolf and Edwacher is unusual as far as poems go. Um, One, it evokes a place. And although it is Anglo-Saxon, it's of a female narration. And, which is very rare, by the way, for English poetry from this period. But although we don't know the origins of the poem, the unnamed narrator, 
who we know to be female due to the feminine u inflection in the Old English language, she's lamenting her separation from Wolf, her husband or lover. And Eidwacher is a third character, let's say, who is the narrator's husband. In which case, the poem can be read then as a love triangle between the woman, Wolf, who is her lover, and Eidwacher, who is her jealous husband. But it's also possible, according to other scholars, that Eidwacher is not a proper noun, so to speak, but it's a common noun like property watcher or sky watcher, or caretaker. In which case, then, the poem can actually be read as the narrator kind of scolding Wolf, her absent husband, who won't pay attention even when their child is being born away in the woods. So this is a brief poem, but I love it, so I'm going to read it and share it with you, and I hope you enjoy it too. Wolf and Eidwacher. To my people, he is like a blood gift. They will devour him if he approaches their pack. It is different with us. Wolf is on an island, I on another. That island is fast, enwarped with fens. On this island, slaughter cruel men are. They will devour him if he approaches their pack. It is different with us. I hounded Wolf with my wide-ranging hopes when it was rainy weather and I sat, wailing. Then the battle-strong bows enclosed me. For me there was joy, but also loathing. Wolf, my wolf, my desire for you has made me sick. Your seldom comings, my morning mind, more than meals missed. Do you hear, Erdwacher, our wretched whelp a wolf bears to the woods? One can easily sever that which was never joined, our song together. And that's Wolf and Eidwacher. Again, it's a very short poem, but so evocative and powerful. It evokes images, for me anyways, of the wolf pack. Obviously, the name wolf helps, and the way in which this translator renders the words of the Old English, it lends itself to not only a wife crying out for her husband, where were you when our child was carried away, but also that sense of the pack and the alpha male, and the female, asking, where were you to protect our whelp against this pack of wolves that came in and carried him away into the woods and probably ate him, devoured him, killed him? Because to my people, he is like a blood gift. They will devour him if he approaches their pack. It is different with us. Wolf is on an island, but he's not on this island with me. I'm on another island. And on this island where I'm at, the men here are cruel and hungry for slaughter. And they will devour him if he even approaches their pack. But with you and me, Wolf, it's it's different. That's why I hounded him. That's why I cried out for him. That's why I sat wailing in the rainy weather, even though the battle-strong bows enclosed me. Why? Because there was joy and loathing. Wolf, my desire for you has made me sick. You don't come often enough to comfort my mourning mind. And so I miss you more than I miss meals. Which again, if she's mourning, she's not eating. And even that isn't enough to give her a sense of comfort or peace. So do you hear, Edvacher? Our whelp was carried away into the woods by a wolf. 
That's why one can easily sever that which was never joined. That's our song together. Our song together now is a song of two who were never joined because our one, our flesh, our baby, was carried away. And you weren't here. You couldn't stop them. And I couldn't stop them. And now he's gone. And now I am empty. And I am in mourning and I cannot eat. And I think that's just an incredibly powerful and evocative poem for such a, a short <laughs> a short set of, of words. But again, it goes to the point that we were made for each other. And when we are together, we are stronger and we are better and we are enriched and we grow. And when we are separated, when we are torn apart, when two people come together to make one flesh, a son, if that son is taken away, they themselves are torn in two and their one song becomes a song of separation, of division, of, of flesh joined together but that that flesh that has been joined together in one is not there anymore. So the glue that binds them together as husband and wife is now gone. And so they're still connected. They're still husband and wife, but that, that now stands between them forever. And we're not told what the outcome is then. We're not told if they stay together and have more children. We're not told if he stays away and never comes home. We're not told if she says to him, I don't want you back. I can't look in your face because your face reminds me of him. Reminds me of my boy. And I can't live with that. It, the mourning and the pain is too strong. The loss is too strong. Knowing that he was taken and you weren't here to stop it. So again, the power, not only of togetherness, the power of love and the power that forms of that bond between two or more people but also recognizing how violent and cruel the world is, how we are always in constant danger of having that which we love, the people that we love, taken from us. And therefore, we must tread more carefully and not take for granted those whom we are with. This is kind of the subtext of the wanderer, but it's right front and center in um, Wolf and Eirwacher. Don't take your relationships for granted. Don't treat each other like you're entitled to have what you have. Don't always be taking, but rather focus on gift giving. Focus on that gratification that comes from being a giver. Focus on gratitude for what you have right now, recognizing I'm not entitled to this. I don't deserve this. It's a gift. And it can be taken at any moment for any reason. They have to move. They have to switch jobs. People get divorced. Life changes and their schedule changes. And now you're not able to go out on Thursday nights anymore like you used to do. Whatever it might be. Right now you have something. And that something is a present to you, a gift given to you by God. And it is not to then be taken lightly. So that then after the fact, if it is the case that the friendship ends or the marriage dissolves or the family grows apart, you can still look backwards and say, thank you. Thank you for what you gave me at that moment. The poem I read at the front end of the show, I Envy Dead Men, I wrote the day that I buried my mentor. And he taught me the gospel. He taught me so much. And yet, because of our personalities, our relationship ended somewhat acrimoniously, at least from my side of things. And 
For years, I simply prayed to forgive him and to let it go, my feelings of animosity or the feelings of betrayal and resentment that I had toward him. And now he's dead. And I was fortunate enough to make peace with him before he died. But I'm not going to lie and eulogize him and say he was a good man without flaw or defect. He wasn't. He was selfish. And he was a selfish personality, and you either took him as he was or not at all. And there was no in-between. And he ran over a lot of people, including myself. But that's okay now. Because I'm older and I'm wiser. And I have other people in my life who enrich my life for the better. And they're with me every day. And they show up for me every day. And they challenge me to be the person that I want to be for them. And the people that are in the rear view mirror, the people that I bury, even though I sometimes envy them because who doesn't want a huge funeral? Who doesn't want lots of people crying and lamenting their passing? Who doesn't want to know that you were important to a lot of people? At the same time, I really wish and I hope and I pray that we could just show each other that before we die, right? You go to these funerals and people are weeping and wailing and talking about this person, the deceased. And yet, as a pastor, I often get to see both sides. I see how the family was before the funeral, during the funeral, and after the funeral at the reading of the will. And sometimes there are three different families, even though they're the same people. Before the funeral, they didn't have time to even show up at hospice care to say goodbye to their mom or dad. At the funeral, they weep and they wail and they eulogize, talking about how wonderful their mother and father was and how much they're going to miss them and they know they're looking down on us from heaven and all that. And then at the reading of the will, they're at each other's throats because I always took care of mom when she was sick. You never did this. I always did that. And I just sit back and I lament how they came to this point in their lives. Their mother or their father was just an accident to them, something that had to be taken care of in the moment someone who needed to be buried, someone who needed their casket and their funeral paid for, someone who didn't leave them what they thought they were entitled to or deserved, versus you have a mother and father. Maybe you don't even know your mother and father, but out there somewhere is a man and a woman who participated in you being here. And whether they were good parents or not, you're here now. And you can either live in the past and blame them for who you are today and play the victim, or you can be grateful that you're alive, and that despite how your parents raised you, or didn't, you're still here, and you have an opportunity to raise your children in such a way that they are with you, and they know how much you love them, and how grateful you are to have them in your life, and how they challenge you, and they draw love out of your heart that you didn't even imagine was possible. And then you can take that same love, and you can pour it out on other people, so that the people that you meet know you're not alone. I'm here right now for you. And I'm going to give you the gift of my time and my attention. I'm going to pour my energy out on you. I'm going to pour my gratitude and my compassion, and my kindness out on you. And I'm going to share myself with you to enrich you. And whether you remember this moment or not, whether this matters at all to you, that's not why I'm doing this. I'm simply doing this because I want you to know you're not alone in this world that I'm here for you right now. And if you need to, pick up the phone and call. And I'll be at the other end. Text me and I will text you back. Show up and I will show up for you. And if not, that's okay too. We had this moment and I gave you something to take away. 
And I hope that that carries you the rest of your life. I think if we did more of that for each other, there'd be less eulogizing at funerals. There'd be less weeping and wailing and wondering, what if I had had time to say this? What if I could have got to him before he died? What if I could have? No, you have now. You have right now. And that's it. That's all you're promised is right now. So why not use right now to be grateful and to seek out fellowship and camaraderie, to love and be loved, to be grateful and show your gratitude in service to others, and to let other people know you're not alone. You don't have to be alone. Being alone is a choice for most of us. Not everyone, but most. And that being alone sucks. And that's coming from somebody who likes being alone, by the way. But at a certain point, being alone sucks. And you need a handshake. You need a hug. You need to be strangled by your teammate. You need to be taught. You need to read a poem out loud and be heard. You need to paint or draw a picture or write a song and let the music of that song move someone's heart to joy, to weeping, to sadness, to hope. You need to sit with somebody and share a cup of coffee or tea and let that other person know I'm here and you're real and you matter. And so if you take anything away from this episode today and from The Wanderer and from Wolf and Eadwacher, I hope it's that, that today is precious. It's a gift and you are precious and you are a gift, whether you recognize that or not. And if you do look over your shoulder and you do get nostalgic for the past, just remember, you were a different person then. And the people that you intersected with, they were different too. And some of them changed you for the better to this day. And some didn't. Some hurt you. Some opened up wounds inside of you that never healed over and never scarred up. And they bleed every single day. But that's a gift too. Because that bleeding heart is what guarantees that you won't treat other people that way. The way you were treated. And that the blood that you shed for that relationship, for that man, that woman, that boy, that girl, there is someone out there worthy of your sacrifice. So don't give up on love. Don't give up on hope. Don't give up on gratitude. But recognize right now, you may be the wanderer. But those who wander in hope do not wander in vain. And I'll end it with that then. So thank you so very much for listening again today. Thank you for putting up with my poetry and my reading. And thank you for being there for me and for reaching out and encouraging me with your messages and your emails and everything that you do to keep me going. I truly appreciate it. Uh, my son goes to the children's hospital today, my 12-year-old. I've talked about him online and stuff. Second set of neurological appointments, 24 to 48-hour test at the children's hospital. My wife will be with him the whole time. I'll be back at the ranch taking care of the rest of our wolf pack. So if you want to, you can pray for Hosea. That's his name, Hosea. He's named after the prophet. And I'm a Hebrew nerd, so of course I couldn't name him Hosea. That's the Greek spelling of it. I had to name him the Hebrew, the correct spelling, Hosea, which means God is my salvation. It comes from Yeshua. It's Jesus' name, actually. Joshua, Hosea. And so even the saying of my son's name reminds me that God created my child, and God gave me my child as a gift, and God gave me love for my son as a gift, and he is a gift to me. And that when we say goodbye to each other, it's never actually goodbye because we'll both see each other again in the resurrection to eternal life. So whether I see him again tomorrow or the day after or the day after that, or I don't see him again until the resurrection to eternal life, 
he is still my Hosea, my son. He is still the God of my salvation. He is still a child of our Heavenly Father. And so I welcome your prayers for him, that the neurological tests go well and that he doesn't have epilepsy and that we can rule out any neurological problems and then move on to what is actually occurring and causing him this sickness and these trials. So that being said, thank you for that as well. And I will talk to you again, hopefully soon, for a brand new episode. See you later, Space Monkeys. Peace.